Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Interpol. I'm Carlos from Interpol. This is Martha Wainwright. Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. <laughs> the real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. On two minutes past nine, you're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Good morning to you. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. I'm John Ford. I'm Rex Hunter. Good morning. Good, good morning, morning all. Good morning, Bron. How are you both? Good, good. Excellent. Good. Wet Sunday morning here in Melbourne town. I know, what a change, hey? Well, Great diving weather between, though, Bron. Yeah. Don't miss out while the weather's good. It has really? been amazing. All these, good viz. Actually, I did All these 30-degree days is just, and without those big, because you get these big, the big northerlies and everything all come in, you know, later in, in, the, in the summer. But at the moment, it's just, it's yeah, stunning. It's stunning. It's yeah. stunning. Yeah. Blue water. Yeah. Whales. What to be missed? So, Something for everyone. Yeah, an amazing <laughs> I'm November. Now. Anyway, it's an amazing November. I've been seeing some of the images coming through, um, through mostly through Facebook, and pretty stunning. Yeah, really amazing. Mm. Hey, thank you, Tim, very much. Thank you, Andrew, very much for soulful bits. Thank mm. you, Craig Horn, and um, I didn't actually catch whether they were the actual Hornets. I think they were the Hornets. They were. <laughs> Thanks, Kent. Um, and yeah, great stuff. Yeah, yes. brilliant. Today's program. We're going to be uh, covering a bit of news. Yeah, could be talking oh, a bit about uh, a bit about vaquitas. Ah. If I can say it, I'm sure you guys, I don't have a Mexican Spanish accent, but <laughs> vaquita. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so come with cheese, John. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it may have in the past. Let's just say that. Anyway, and and their plight, they're actually a freshwater porpoise, oh, which yeah. is not doing very well. But um, anyway, I'll get to that in a little while. Excellent. We're going to be also crossing to Perth. At about um, 9.30, it'll be 6.30 Perth time. And we're going to be speaking with Phil Jarrett. 
Don't you love it when you get a frog in your throat when you're on live radio? <laughs> <laughs> Phil is, uh, he's re- recently put out a book called Life of Brian, A Surfer's Journey, and it's a memoir covers his uh, life as a surfer but also as a um, an editor and an author of uh, surf culture. Um, everything, if you can pick anything to do with surfing, Phil's probably written about it. And great read. So we're going to be speaking with him about um, this particular book and his life. There you go. Life on the ocean waves. Yeah. Ooh, hopefully he's going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> Surfers have a tendency to, <laughs> you know, surf dominates everything. But being 6.30 in the morning in um, in Perth, hopefully he's not gone out yet. Let's yes. hope it's not coming in from the Southern Ocean. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we've got Neil Blake, the yes. bankkeeper. Yes. I went right over Neil. My apologies, Neil. So Neil's coming in. Thanks, John. I think um, he's just leaving the building, bro. <laughs> yeah, he's like, what? <laughs> Um, Neil's going to be speaking um, about some work that he's been doing down in Ocean Grove and we're actually going to be getting on the line Jackie Scully, who is the president of Ocean Grove Coast Care, um, talking about some of the great work they've been doing with plastics reduction campaigning and and programs, uh, efforts to reduce plastic uh, around the Ocean Grove environment. So really looking forward to speaking with both Neil and Jackie and some of the other great stuff coming up um, for Neil in his role as Baykeeper. And what Captain Trash has been up to? <laughs> Captain Trash. That's him. You'll, that'll, that'll make sense when Neil comes in. And Rex. Rex. Oh, that's that's you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to be talking about putting ships... What would a middle-aged man do in his spare time, Bron? So I just put a ship in a bottle. That's And you brought one in. I brought one in for you. I'll just, have to. I'll take a photo of it and put it on our Facebook page. It's a bottle. so you can get a visual. <laughs> it's it's so, amazing. It's a um, this is the SS Caramba. I'll tell you, SS Caramba. We found it in 2011. Disappeared for like 77 years. So I just like to make little, little something to do with our shipwrecks and ships. Oh, and you did this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, this yeah. is one that you've done. Fantastic! <laughs> wow. So what does a middle-aged man do in his spare time? <laughs> it's very, it's very impressive. I wouldn't have the patience for it. So that's our program today, John. Fantastic. Sh- let's have some weather. Yeah. Look, um, I feel like today is going to be the first day in a while where it's not actually going to hit 30. Um, it's going to hit 29 though. Hey. <laughs> really, it feels like we've had about 10 days in a row. Yeah, we have. Must have. Um, yeah, phenomenal. Anyway, um, look, but it's going to rain, so it's going to be one of those really muggy days. Uh, cloudy, very high chance of showers and thunderstorms, most likely in the afternoon and evening, although it's probably raining in quite a few places right now. Uh, and 90, uh, 4 to 15 mils, so a bit of rain going on. Um, and then we get, wow, 22 degree degree day tomorrow and cloudy. So that's, uh, wow, that's been a while since we had anything like that. Uh, but then it all ramps up again. So Tuesday 29 and sunny, sunny, Wednesday 34 with a possible late shower, Thursday with 31 uh, and then it cools down a bit for Friday and Saturday with uh, 23 and 20. Um, look, today the winds are 15 to 20 kilometre um, northerlies becoming south, south, west and light late in the afternoon. So it's going to be, you know, as long as you don't get stuck in any of these sort of storm fronts or that what to look out for, but basically in between, and this is kind of how it's been, hasn't yeah, it, hasn't it, it Rex? Like, if you, if it, in between the storm fronts, it's just <laughs> been amazing. Like, you know, hardly any wind at all. Yeah, and so as long as you can just, you know, keep your weather on the, on the radar and just make sure that you... Yeah, so that, yeah, that, that's, that's the way to go. Um, now, surf-wise, we've got uh, early northerly winds and continuing small swells uh, only favouring the exposed beaches. But the water temperature is up to 17 degrees now. Mm. Yeah, I saw something from um, Terry Allen this morning that in some parts of the bay it's 20 
Mm. Already, yeah, yeah. Amazing, it's huh? pretty warm for November. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The sort had, of temperatures you'd get around. Mm-hmm. Sort of we had nineteen. Oh, sorry, Brian, no go. We had nineteen on the surface of Gippsland yesterday. Right, sixteen down the bottom. Wow. <laughs> there you go. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, it's going to be nice. I've Look, been seeing predictions of um, potentially a La Nina summer coming up, even though we've kicked oh, off to this right. big start of very warm temperatures right, in November. Right, so a wet. Uh, wet and cool. Wet and cool. And I remember a few mm. years ago this happened. We, we kind of got off to a flying start for summer in November and then yeah. it just disappeared. Yeah. People's mm. summer plans in January all kind of fell yeah. over. Anyway, indeed. we'll see. Yeah, we'll indeed. See. Um, what have look, you got, And to, to, to go in hand in hand, I guess, with everyone getting out in the summer, well, springy, summery sunshine and in the water, I just wanted to um, put out a bit of an announcement around um, if you're a rock lobster fisherman. So if you're a recreational fisher or fisherwoman, um, if you you go out there and recreationally catch rock lobster, which you can do by hand and then you also do by, by, some, by some nets, um, but you need now a tag... So you need to tag your rock lobster to basically have a little clip tag, which you need to approach um, the Fisheries Victoria, which is now the Victorian Fisheries Authority, and you need to have uh, a little tag and attach them to them. You, all the ba- normal bag limits and so on would apply, but, but it's very, very important, and they will start enforcing this. Mm. And so basically it's, a, it's, it's an idea to sort of better inform how many rock lobsters are harvested so they get an idea of if you purchase you have to get these tags and then you have to fill them and then you have to report back then on what you catch, where you catch it and how heavy it was. So the, ho- the whole initiative is around, okay, we've got all these recreational fishers out there and they're catching all these rock lobsters. We have no idea how many they are. How do we get an idea of doing this. So they've got these tags. So you've got to tag them. So we know that's a recreational rock lobster. It's not commercially caught, so you can't sell it in the markets. Um, and also we know how many are caught and, and how heavy they were and so on. So it's a really interesting initiative, but um, it's just I think it'll take a little while for people who just might go down there and just sort of dive for, for a couple of craze or something to get their heads around that there's a little bit more administration wow. involved now. It's, mm. based, it's enforced and regulated citizen science. Yeah, in, in some ways it is. Yeah, it is citizen science in that sense. If it, you know, and uh, I guess, I guess, the recreational fishing though requires a license anyway. Yeah. So is it you know it is citizen, but it's also you know of its own. It's also a, an industry to some extent. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it's all data, isn't it? And if you don't know what's out there, how are you, how are you going to manage it properly? Oh, absolutely. And yeah. and we have a, we have this in in Victoria this challenge of where there's a number of um, of our fish stocks, or in this case crustacean stocks, um, where the commercial catch is lower than the recreational. So the you know the recreational people are out there catching more, and we don't we don't necessarily know what that number is. Mm. And it's important to know that so we can manage these properly. So. Can you see there might be potential for this to extend to other types of targeted fish and other species as yeah, well? Yeah, I've been an advocate for many years for this for bluefin tuna. Mm. I think it's very, very important because bluefin tuna are a internationally managed quota species in that we have obligations internationally to make sure we don't catch too much, uh, that that happens for recreational as well. And I think that that probably would be the next target, although, you know, there's, that's uh, hasn't always gone down well. You can definitely but see the case for that, though. That definitely, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could start doing that for snapper as well, but, you know, so many, again, it's a big operation for something like snapper where you pull out so many from the bay, right, and there's so many people fishing for them. So I think with rock lobster, is it's an easy way to start. Yeah, to start process right. yeah but, but as you're saying if a species is threatened or endangered or um potentially you know commercially unsustainable there's a real grounds for doing something like that absolutely mm. yeah there really is wow. anyway interesting initiative hey we'll keep our eye on it cool
Thanks, John. Or just let them go. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, you could do that. Exactly. Just go down and have think, a look at them. I don't think there's many people that catch rock lobster to let them go. It's not quite the fight that, they, <laughs> yeah. that you're after, right? Yeah, anyway. And they're not an easy, they're not an easy animal to... They're not an easy thing. It's quite no. skillful, you know. Like that's, yeah, that's the thing. That's I think fine. you can only catch two a day or something anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. Great. And without further ado, welcome Neil Blake or... Should I say Captain Trash? Oh, are you there? Oh, it's Captain Trash. <laughs> no, he's actually my identical twin brother. <laughs> I couldn't tell you apart if I tried. How are you, Neil? No, he's better looking than I am. So, <laughs> yes. I'm very well, thank you. Good to be here yeah. as usual. Great to have you back. Yeah. What have you been up to? Oh, well, I had the good fortune uh, a couple of weeks ago to um, get to give a presentation to the Sustainable Seafood uh, Dinner down at the Marine Discovery Centre for the Friends of Marine Discovery Centre. And so uh, that was fantastic. Got to go in and check out the touch tanks and all that sort of stuff down there. Excellent stuff. And then the next morning had breakfast with the Ocean Grove Coast Carers, which was excellent as well, you know. So uh, some great people, beautiful environment down there. And uh, Captain Trash wandered the streets um, uh, saying, Ah, the people! And they, uh, <laughs> Did they uh, know who you were? <laughs> <laughs> no, they didn't actually, but they seemed to be very welcoming. And uh, yeah, it's amazing, you know, if you say, if you ask people to say are and then tell them how they feel, they say, oh, well, it feels really good, you know. So, so it's, it's just a good way to interact with people and remind people to reduce, reuse and recycle and remove. We are just talking about removing trash that you see. Uh, yeah, you don't need permission to pick it up, do you, Rex? No, you don't. You just see it there and you just pick it up. My wife and I do every day when we walk down Newport, down the Warbies. Loads of rubbish from the fishermen. That's something my kids have started doing, and I'd, I'd like to claim that it was me, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a culture, you know, pick up that rubbish. They just do it. Well, that's the way it works. Uh, we're working on the kids because they're the ones that are going to actually impress their parents on, on changing their ways. Yeah, and it's, I mean, of course, it's safety first. It's always safety first. Mm-hmm. You'd never go and tell a child to pick up something that's potentially dangerous. But if it's just a plastic bag blowing yeah, down the street, yeah, which right. is what they tend to do, mm. they'll pick it up and either, you know, stash it for when they find a bin or if there's a bin nearby, put it straight in. So, mm. yeah, it's yeah. no excuses. No, that's right. I think schools are starting to really focus on that too. Um, kids are uh, much better at actually learning what they need to do with their, with their rubbish, um, but also just picking stuff up in the playground becoming more of a, an accepted thing that that's what you do. Yeah, and it's, it's really great. I mean, actually, I noticed down at Ocean Grove, we, we, we parked outside the Coles uh, between the car park and the entry into the Coles area, and there were a lot of people were actually carrying reusable shopping bags. Mm. In, my, in my observation, uh, the people down there thought it was kind of normal, it wasn't so impressive, but it seemed to me, though, there has been an impact made on that community down there, probably by the people from, you know, plastic uh, bag free Torquay and those those sort of uh, campaigns that have been ongoing for a few years, to, to, to my observation, seem to be working. That's right. Anglesey, of course, being the first... Uh, place in Victoria, be it a town or, or part of or city or anything, but Anglesey was the first to declare themselves that they were going to go plastic bag free. Mm. That was about ten years ago. It was quite a long yeah, time ago. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of slow progress, but it is there is change occurring, and so you know uh, we were just celebrating people and patting them on the back for for, for doing that, making that choice rather than sort of giving people a hard time because they were plastic bags, yeah. which uh, is you know people who seem to be welded on to plastic use. Uh, they uh, they're struggling with that, like all people who have various addictions and so you don't <laughs> want to give them a hard time, you know. But give the people who are doing the right thing a, 
a good pat on the back. That's right. And I'd like to see the bar continually raised too. I mean, you, most schools now have a, a, a nude food day. Let's make it a nude food week and then we can extend that to a nude food month. And before you know it, people are just stopped using plastic altogether. Mm. Yeah. Because in like 30, 30 odd years ago, there, there was, was no such thing, 35. You no, know? that's right. That's right. <laughs> you didn't have wax plastic. paper. Wax paper. Yeah. I was. I'm from the wax paper era. Yes, we had wax paper in our lunches. <laughs> now we have a guest on the line, and um, you've been talking Neil about spending time at Ocean Grove, and um, thank you to you for lining this one up. We're um, now crossing to Ocean Grove to speak with the president of Ocean Grove Coast Care, Jackie Scally. Are you there, Jackie? I am. Hello. Hello, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing? Um, Great I to. Have to say I'm- I'm not actually the president of Ocean Grove Coast Care. I'm oh, but you will treasurer. be, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a very big task, and we've got a wonderful president at the helm in Fran McAloon, who's done a wonderful job over the last few years. Okay. Excellent. Um, we cleared that up then. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's no coup then. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, not, nothing planned. What can you tell us about Ocean Grove Coast Care, Jackie? Who, who, who are you? Who's involved? What do you do? Yeah. Um, so we're a, a small but dedicated group of volunteers uh, down here at Ocean Grove. We began back in 2010 and back then our main focus was really on the removal of a weed from the dunes called Polygala myrtifolia, which is also known as Bellarine pea. And it's spread right through the dune system here. It's a common garden plant and it's escaped from the gardens here and taken hold in the dunes. So we really started with a focus on trying to remove that weed from the dunes. And over the years, our focus has expanded from weed removal to revegetation and now focusing on encouraging a reduction in plastic bags and plastics more broadly in our community. Fantastic. With um, with the, uh, what was it called? The, was it Barwon Pea? Yes, Bellarine. Bellarine Pea. Um, yeah. Are you able to, does it still exist in people's gardens? Is that campaign work able to extend to people actually having it in their gardens in the first place? Yeah, look, unfortunately it is still common in people's gardens. Part of our work around removing Bellarine pea was to do some education as well. So um, in partnership with uh, Barwon Coast, we produced a little um, alternative planting guide for people's gardens here. So identifying a number of the common exotic species that people put into their gardens and looking at what alternatives they can plant, so what Indigenous um, plants they could put in, in in place of those common weeds that are causing problems in our dune system. So we've been trying to do a little bit of that education work as well. Yeah, yeah it's great. I mean, it's amazing the work that is done by community groups such as yours, Jackie. You know, uh, the value of them is is quite huge, really. And and when you think about the volunteer commitment in the in the weeding the dunes too, that would be massive. Yeah, it's really impressive. Whenever we have working bees, particularly those working bees that get us out out into the dunes, pulling out weeds or planting plants, we seem to have a huge number of people turn up out of the woodwork so you know, I guess like lots of committees we have our core groups that do the administrative tasks and keep things ticking along in the background but it's really impressive when we have these events and we get people um, you know from throughout the community all ages coming along to help out so you've got yeah, a big area of coast interest. to play with down there too so it's, a, it's very difficult to manage all sorts of um, different landscape really yeah, we do, that's right, and and a growing population as well. So, mm. um, you know, there's, it's a big coastal area, but there's quite a lot of pressures um, being placed on that strip of coastline with the, the population growth we're experiencing. 
Do you know much about um, your neighbouring coast care groups, Jackie? So Barwon Heads and yeah. Queenscliff and Janjuk and, and other areas near where you are? Yeah, so many of your listeners listeners would be familiar with Friends of the Bluff in Barwon Heads. They're a really active group that have done some fantastic work around the Barwon Heads Bluff. Um, and to our east, there's a new group that's forming, a new coast care group um, in Point Lonsdale that are just in the process of, of forming at the moment. Um, over at Janjuk, there's a really active coast care group there as well. Um, right along the coastline as well, we have a number of volunteers that help out with the hooded plovers over summer. So um, there's lots of volunteer activity happening along our coastline here, which is really impressive. Do you guys all get together or is it a bit like kind of regional local footy where you're all kind of in fierce opposition <laughs> with each other? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say we're in fierce opposition. Um, over the years, we've done it a little bit with Barwon Coast and Friends of the Bluff. Um, not as much as we'd like to. I think there's real opportunity for us to form some of those partnerships and and work together a bit more. Having said that, with our plastic bag-free work, we have been um, talking with other groups, particularly the Torquay group that have been quite active in um, in that area, as well as um, the Bowen Head Sustainability Group that have also been driving a plastic-free campaign in Bowen Head. So we do draw on each other for um, knowledge and sharing lessons and that, that type of thing. Great. What's coming up over the summer? I imagine, and, and well, not just I imagine, I've been there. I can see um, you know, uh, mm. the, the population swells massively. Does this it in- does. Yeah. <laughs> Are you able to kind of draw in um, some energy from the people who come down for their holidays and get people involved yeah. in what you do? Yeah, look, we don't do many working bees over summer. Um, our working bees are more focused in autumn and winter. Um, but over the summer, we try to get out into the community and get to some of the local markets where we sell our beautiful jute bags that have a, a lovely design by the Bowen Heads Primary School students. Um, so we're going to be at the Christmas market in the main street of Ocean Grove on the 6th of December. So people can come along and buy their jute bags, which make a great Christmas present. We'll also be selling memberships for our cruise care group, also another great Christmas idea. Um, we also, over January, run a, a, an education program with the Nippers. So we do that in conjunction with Bellarine Catchment Network, and it's focusing on um, in raising environmental awareness, particularly of the coastal environment, amongst those young nippers that um, that love to be down on the beach. Brilliant. Uh, how do people get involved, Jackie? We've got people listening who who want who maybe are planning on coming down to Ocean Grove um, yes. for, for at any time, really, but um, particularly for some of your local community who might be listening but haven't got involved. How how do they do that? Yeah, so we've got a Facebook page. That's probably our best first protocol and you can find that just looking up Ocean Grove Coast Care on Facebook. Um, we also have an email address so if you've got any queries just drop us a line at oceangrovecoastcare at gmail.com. Um, I think they're probably the best avenues to get in touch with us. Fantastic. Thanks Jackie. It's been great speaking with you and um, love to keep in touch heading into the future and finding out, you know, more about what you've been up to and also if you've got any events coming up, please feel free to, to get in touch because we're always happy to plug um, some of the great work that you do. Yeah, thanks so much. And thanks again, Captain Trash, for coming down a couple of weeks ago. It was a real highlight for us. Ah, it was a great done. pleasure to be down in OG. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, hopefully we'll see you here again soon. <laughs> yeah, it will be good. Excellent. Thank, thanks, Jackie. Good on you, Jackie. Thank you. Thanks. Bye for now. Bye. That's great, Neil. 
Yeah, I, I'm always inspired by the fantastic work that people are doing, you know, and the incredible knowledge, though, that is encapsulated in groups like that too in all sorts of different things. So yeah. the community um, resources are just uh, astonishing. Brilliant. We're going to get you busy lining up some of the local coast care people to, to come well, in. Well, there's all sorts of fascinating things like the uh, Bayside... Earth Sciences Society that's recently formed, which is uh, based around educating people about the uh, fossils down at Bay Morris. You know, so there's all sorts of uh, wonderful assets there that uh, community people are actually uh, bringing to light and, and giving people access to, which is great. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, now we'll have to move on in just a sec. What have you got coming up? Uh, well, uh, we're con- continuing to do um, uh, working on some weeding bee down at, at Point Ormond, so uh, that's part of the regeneration project. Uh, and that's that's a, a really interesting exercise where uh, we actually cleared uh, an over-enthusiastic native plant down there, uh, seabury saltbush, which was taking over and actually eliminating other native species. So, oh, right. uh, we're not not wholesale clear felling of it, but just little patches here and there and replacing it with some ground cover species that'll be uh, much more beneficial to the blue wren population down at Point Ormond. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that information's on the Echo Centre's website, Port Great. Phillip Echo Centre. Great, I'm just making note of that. And mm. I've just realised this is your last program for this year. That's, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. <laughs> <laughs> We've only got three left, I think, after this week anyway. Yeah, the other thing, though, I'm going down to, um, uh, to Rye in a couple of weeks' time to train people how to do the beach audits down there so we've got a great group operating at Mount Martha but uh, we're wanting to get uh, a couple of other local settings in Port Phillip Bay to to do the systematic auditing of microplastics on beaches and then we can use that data to compare with street audits that are done in catchments around the bay. I'm very enthusiastic about getting people auditing the problem on the streets which is where the issue begins. Fantastic. So if people want to get involved in that exercise, same thing, just go to the Eco Centre? Yeah, that's yep. right. Or they can uh, just give me an email at baykeeper at ecocentre.com. Baykeeper at ecocentre.com. We'll put those links uh, on our Facebook fantastic. page. Thanks, Neil. It's been a fantastic year. It has, yeah. And uh, 2018 will be very exciting too. Indeed it will. And uh, we'll catch you very soon in the new year, I hope. Thanks, Bron. Yeah, I hope to be still alive and out and out. Always, <laughs> we'll always get your great brother to get in, in otherwise. <laughs> get <laughs> the trash. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. None of us will be around. Excellent. Yeah, sure. Have a great, uh, well, I won't say break for you over the summer because I know things keep being very busy, but I'm really looking forward to chatting to you when well, we come back in 2018. It's been great being on 3RRR. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've just found Probably. ourselves a new station, <laughs> a new stink can. We'll get busy in production with that one. 3 triple R, and in just a minute we're going to be crossing to Perth if you missed the start of the program to speak with Phil Jarrett. Phil is author of Life of Brian, A Surfer's Journey. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's his memoir and it's a coverage of, um, of his entire life both as a surfer but also as someone who has written about surfing. Before we do that, John, we mentioned at the start of the program... Yeah, look, the plight I'm a little bit of the plight of the vaquitas, and we have, I think we haven't had any Mexican phone calls to tell us exactly how that's um, pronounced. <laughs> I probably should have looked that up, but um, look, the vaquita is a um, is a porpoise, right? So similar to it's a sort of a dolphin. So, um, and this one is extremely rare in that it's the most threatened um, uh, cetacean in in the world. Cetacean obviously being involving whales and dolphins and and, and so on. Um, And it exists in the northern Gulf of California, just off the Mexican coast. Um, And there's less than 30 of these 
left in the world, right? So this this is a marine animal, not a freshwater one. Um, there's less than 30. There, uh, 20 or 30 years ago, there was sort of 600 or maybe up to 1,000 of them, but they've been threatened by... Um, the irony is that they've been threatened by illegal fishing for an endangered fish. So, you know, it's sort of these sort of things kind of, yeah, anyway, how do you, how do you stop that sort of thing, you know? Mm. Uh, illegal fish that is actually worth lots and lots of money because its swim bladder has magical properties in some culture. So it's, you know, and then so therefore it gets caught in this. So you're trying to stop an illegal thing to stop an illegal thing and it's, yeah, anyway, it hasn't worked very well. Um, and unfortunately, um, the, a program to try to i don't know bring them back or to save these because it there's they're pretty much going to go extinct is the is, is a general general thought at the moment um and they tried to go and capture some of these so they could take them to um net free areas so they have areas where they know that they you know there's no no gill nets here there's no illegal fishing we've made sure we didn't want to move them to those areas um and they, they had this big program called vaquita cpr and unfortunately they captured these things and they died right. and um so it didn't work, you know, human assisted in this case, you know, and there were thoughts of if we can do this, then we can do captive breeding. But the fact of just, just holding them in a pen killed them, it means that, you know, the, the chances of, of captive breeding is, is over. So unfortunately, we're probably looking uh, at the moment in the decline and the, the, the extinction of, um, of a marine species, which is pretty sad. Oh, yeah. Um, but um, porpoises, um, particularly sort of in coastal porpoises and, and freshwater porpoises in particular, um, are really vulnerable species. And we've had a number of extinctions of freshwater porpoises, most recently in the Yangtze River in China, which is only, um, I think, about 10 years ago, where we, um, we lost another species there. So it's a bit, of a bit of a sad story around those, about these sort of coastal and freshwater porpoises. But, um, you know, and even though we know it's happening, it can be very, very difficult, if not impossible, to actually stop that decline. So, mm. yeah, anyway, a bit of sad news, but I think we'll, we'll, we'll move on to some more positive surfing stories pretty soon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's, um, there was a, um, a declaration this week of a species of rhino, which is now officially extinct as well. It was mm. from Java, I saw. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. Not, not we can cool. know all about it. We can put our resources into it, but... There's other things at play. So. Yeah, that's mm. right. Thanks, John. No worries. Now, our next guest is well-known in surfing circles around the globe, first making his name as editor of Trax magazine in the mid-1970s and later on penning more than 30 books, including award-winning surf histories and best-selling biographies, including Mr Sunset, the biography of American surf legend Jeff Hackman, Kelly Slater, For the Love and Salts and Suits. Over the last 40 years, uh, uh, the, last 40 years um, the Australian surf writer Phil Jarrett has chronicled surf culture from around the world. He's received the Australian Surfing Hall of Fame Media Award three times and won numerous other awards for his work. His journey has now been documented in his own memoir, Life of Brian, A Surfer's Journey. It's with great pleasure now we cross to Perth to speak live with Phil Jarrett. It's 6.30am over there. Maybe he's already caught a few waves. Good morning, Phil. <laughs> yeah, I've been down to Triggs and, uh, and had a few early ones, uh, Bron. Now, I'm sitting in a hotel room. I'm actually about to get onto the Indian Pacific in an hour or so, so it's a, I'm having a very unsurf weekend. <laughs> Excellent. Now, you've spent your whole life writing about other surfers. Um, can you tell us about the moment when you decided to write about your own? Yeah, well, uh, there's been a lot of me, um, anybody who's familiar with my early um, work for Tracks magazine in particular um, there's been a lot of me sort of inserted into the into the storyline um, and uh, so I wasn't unfamiliar with making myself a character in, in my own 
stories, uh, my own depictions of what was going on, and also profiles of other people. Um, you know, some some would just call it complete um, megalomania, others call it gonzo journalism. I don't, I don't know which one won out. But um, over over the years, that has been kind of a, a way my uh, work has to, has tended to roll when I start to write about surfing. So it wasn't it wasn't that uh, that big a stretch for me. But um, I I'd kind of been putting away bits and pieces of, of, uh, of my life that I thought would make uh, make an interesting interesting memoir um, for about three or four years and uh, my publisher to be honest wasn't particularly interested in the whole project they said uh, well if that's the best you can do I suppose we can we can roll with it I just had a best-selling book about Bali so they, they had to keep me uh, had to humor me and then uh, what happened was a, a guy called William Finnegan won the Pulitzer Prize a friend of mine from um, New York won the Pulitzer Prize for biography for, for writing his surf memoir book called Barbarian Days and suddenly everything changed they were very very interested <laughs> yeah we um we had bill on our program last year when barbarian days came out and um it's it's interesting sort of now that we're in that era where where the the biographies are coming out and it's a fascinating look back to that time and the culture of that time a lot of it's been spoken about but to actually see it all documented is it's really interesting time yeah, well, it, it is interesting that, um, that our lives, uh, Bill Finnegan and, uh, and my lives, are sort of were approximately the same age, and we both both had careers in journalism. He's more decorated than mine, I might say. Well, different um, different no, field no. altogether as well. Well, yeah, I've kind of stuck reasonably close to surfing throughout, whereas his uh, his career um, uh, diverted uh, pretty early on, and uh, and surfing's been his way of staying sane while reporting from from battlefields and, and disaster areas over many years for the New Yorker. So, yeah, it's two, it's two ways of uh, looking at what surfing's meant in, in your life. And in, in my case, it's meant um, pretty much everything. Uh, at the end of the day, um, I look back at uh, what I've done in my career and, and my personal life, and uh, the glue has always been surfing. You know, there have been many times when things started to fall apart and you get back in the ocean and things just seem to work out. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, having read through it, it, it kind of really struck me that there are going to be two, um, probably more, but two kind of audience groups for this book. There'll be surfers um, who have who've grown up surfing and experienced surfing culture, you know, regardless of their age. But then there'll be other people like myself who, we were saying before you came on, um, grew up sort of on the fringe of surf culture. I was a kid in the 70s and spent a lot of time down in Anglesey and not actually part of the surf culture, but really observing it and witnessing it. And this is a really great insight into what it was actually like to be really part of it. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear you survived your formative years in that side of the world. <laughs> I've, got, I've got many experiences that I can't repeat on radio from the uh, what is now known as the surf coast. It certainly was the, it was the hub back in the, uh, back in the 70s when the surf industry, um, particularly Quicksilver and Rip Curl, were just starting to fire and... Uh, I've got many great memories from that period. Yeah, and uh, and some of those are documented in this book too. And look, it's a really great read. It's at times a very personal one. I thought maybe just um, can we start back to where it all began for you, surfing as a kid in the 60s and growing up in, in Coromel? Yeah, well, Coromel on the uh, Illawarra coast, uh, just near Wollongong. Um, when, I was, when I was a young kid, I, I thought it was pretty... Pretty ordinary, you know. It was, uh, I, I guess, the the, uh, the spectre of the Port Kimber Steelworks billowing smoke uh, out from just a few miles down south. Um, every time I looked at the ocean, I saw the Port Kimber Steelworks. So it was, uh, it wasn't, it didn't seem to me to be an ideal place to grow up as a as a surfer. But um, now that I now when I drive down there to, to see uh, to see some parts of my family who, who remain with us, um, I. Um, 
I look at it and think, my, my God, this place really is quite beautiful. It's a beautiful stretch of coastline. And uh, so in retrospect, I think I was very fortunate to go up there. And um, it was also a kind of a, uh, a place where, where, where surfers from one of the, the Sydney hubs of the sport in the very early days, Cronulla, um, would, would migrate at weekends and during the summer, often in the afternoons after work. Um, those long, long summer afternoons, most of the guys were tradies and uh, they'd come down in their vans and, and uh, we'd surf after school. And I didn't have a board in those very early days. Uh, and, uh, and I used to just sit on the beach and wait for these, uh, these big guys, our heroes, to come in and then I'd ask if I could borrow them. One of the guys that I used to do that from was a guy called Bobby Brown. And um, he went. He went on to become a, um, a real, real champion. He was just a beautiful, beautiful guy. Very, very young when I knew him. But uh, to me, he seemed uh, like uh, an old, mature surfer. He was probably 18 at the time. And uh, he would loan me his board, and he'd actually um, sit with me in the shore break and uh, and show me how to do things. Like um, the thing that I treasure most that he taught me was that um, was that uh, he showed me how to push the board, how to stand up on the board, get a bit of momentum going, stand up on the board. And use that to uh, push you through the breaking wave to get out into the surf. And I thought that was really cool, and I could do that a long time before I could actually stand up and ride a wave. <laughs> but, uh, but, but Bobby Bobby finished in the uh, in the final of the World Titles in 1964, and then um, within a couple of years, he uh, unfortunately was, was glassed in a pub and died at 21. Mm. Um, I loved reading about um, some of the, the challenges, obviously not quite to that extent, but, but some of the challenges faced by some of the teen surfers in the 70s. And some years ago we spoke with um, Simon Buttonshaw and Brian Singer and they described surfing that era as drop-in, drop-out culture. I think you describe it as a, a spooky sidebar cult where surfers didn't get a lot of acceptance in the mainstream. When, when did this change When did this change happen, do you think? When did surfers start to become really part of mainstream? Well, or, or have they not, do you think? Yeah, well, it's interesting that you should mention uh, those, those two gentlemen, both of whom are friends of mine. Um, but uh, they, I'm, I'm sure back in those days that they speak of, uh, they would have considered that they were dropping dropping in and then dropping out. Um, but uh, the bottom line is that um, they, like many others of us, um, did that for quite some time um, and managed to, uh, to build lives around surfing. Um, and be quite successful in that and, and other endeavours as well. I think I, I could give you a long list of uh, people who started out as humble surfers and have gone on to um, make a real impact in the world. Um, whether it's Brian Singer winning the Melbourne Cup, or <laughs> or, uh, or being the part owner of the horse that won the Melbourne Cup, or whether it's Simon Buttonshaw, excuse me, um, becoming a renowned uh, creative artist, uh, you know, a fine artist, um, as well as all the work he's done in the, in the surf industry. Um, uh, over, over many years. So I think uh, it is a great arc. And surfing really kind of brings out, in a lot of people, it brings out this creativity um, and also a, a willingness to, to really test the boundaries. And uh, to me, that's been, a, um, that's been the reason I kept coming back to surfing. Um, and for the last 20-odd oh, years, uh, I've never, I haven't been away from it. But, but earlier in my career, um, I spent you know stretches in places like London where it just simply wasn't possible to, to surf. And uh, it kind of it becomes a, a specter from your past, if you like. But uh, but when things go wrong and you come back to surfing, uh, immediately you realise how important it is to you. So these days I try to, even though I'm about to hop on a train and cross the continent, I won't be getting wet for another few days. Um, I'll be thinking about surfing as soon as I get to the other side. Yeah, I was going to ask you about England because um, that's a in your early twenties you spent a bit of time there, um, and afterwards in France, Spain, and, and Portugal as well. Um, and England's not 
not known that well for its surfing. Although I've got a friend who's lived in Cornwall for a while and she said there's actually quite a, a strong surfing culture in Cornwall. But what was it like in England back in the 70s? Was there any surf culture at all? Well, more than most people would think. Um, Cornwall has always always, been, always had a very strong uh, surf culture um, going back to uh, the, the 1950s. But even in earlier times, there was a, a kind of surf culture. They used to uh, they used to use handboards uh, uh, back as uh, early as the nineteen tens into the nineteen twenties. Between the between the wars, uh, it was quite popular uh, along the beaches of Cornwall to use handboards. Surfboards came into the picture quite a bit later, but um, but uh, the Australian lifeguards uh, who went over there on the great adventure and worked their summers at uh, Port Cornwall and at Duke and places like that, Fistral beaches, um, they really brought with them uh, the new, the modern surf culture of fiberglass surfboards and um, it, you know, it, it became entrenched quite quickly. The same thing happened in France and I've been fortunate to spend, you know, even more time uh, in the southwest of France, in the Basque country um, over many, many years and uh, both these places are, are quite different uh, surf cultures to our own. But, at, at, you know, but scratch, a, scratch a Frenchie and you, you'll find a, a surfer. And it's the same with the Poms, you know. It's, it's a, surfing has a way of uniting people uh, regardless of, uh, of colour or creed um, in this love of surfing. And, uh, and, you know, you might end up fighting for a wave, but uh, at the end, of the end of the day you'll be enjoying a beer by the, by the fire on the beach. I feel it, uh, Rexy. I just uh, I remember back in the 70s, my brother was a, a big-time surfer and his mates down in Queenslift. And there was a, they were talked about... But, making the big pilgrimage to a tidal wave in the UK somewhere, I remember. Yeah. Um, that's good, uh, Rex. Good memory, mate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you can still do that if you if you, if you really feel so inclined. Uh, nowadays with the Kelly Slater uh, wave tool, I think you can, if you want to surf inland, you can do it in nicer water. But uh, you're talking about the seven bore. And uh, well, I've it. never done it. Uh, yeah, I've never, I've never, never done it. Um, uh, I know quite a few people who have, and um, it's not that great a wave, and the water is disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got. I, there is also a, a wave in the middle of Munich. Um, it's a river wave in that, the that river. Up because of yeah, it, it, uh, it, it's it's quite an amazing wave. I have ridden that and uh, hurt myself rather badly, so I had to retreat to the uh, to the shore and uh, and uh, go to a beer garden immediately. <laughs> Um, I did want to ask you, Phil, about tracks and where that all began and particularly you're coming together with Albie Fowlson and John Widsick to eventually take on that role as editor. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that time? Um, yes, I can. Uh, they, were, they were great years. Um, actually, tracks kind of came... Uh, uh, came riding out of the uh, out of the uh, peninsula and uh, northern peninsula, Sydney's northern beaches, um, in 1970. Towards the end of 1970, when I was uh, working as a respectable uh, straight journalist for the Sydney Morning Herald, and um, I, I was amazed that uh, this magazine, which its first issue had uh, had a picture of the of the Newcastle Steel um, Steelworks, the smokestacks from the Newcastle Steelworks on the cover. And uh, although one of one of my friends were, were up in arms, going, what, is "This is supposed to be a surf magazine," and they put this picture, this disgusting picture of pollution, on the cover. Um, 
Uh, I kind of related to it because I'd grown up with that image of the Port Kempis Fairworks in, in the backdrop of my surfing experience. Um, but I also related with the content of tracks, which was uh, which was far different from anything that had preceded it. It was uh, it was not a magazine about surfing; it was a magazine of interest to surfers, and it covered the, this whole broad range of, uh, of areas that included uh, the environment and rock and roll and health foods and drugs, which uh, strangely enough always seemed to go together in those days. And uh, and I became a, an addict, if you like, uh, very quickly, and started contributing articles to the magazine. And then I went on my big adventure to to, uh, to the UK and to Europe that we just talked about, and uh, I, I contributed articles from from far places while I was uh, over there. Um, contributed to tracks, and then when I came back, I kind of segued into the roles, and it wasn't without a few tears along the way. I can tell you, that um, Albie Albie Felsen uh, offered me the job, and then and then a couple of days, I quit my job as a as a newspaper reporter and moved out to Whale Beach to. to to start work and then he told me that um, actually there'd been a mistake he'd forgotten that he'd asked a, a guy that uh, that he met uh, and probably smoked a few reapers with <laughs> at the 19, at the 1972 world championships in san diego and this guy who was a very well-known rock and roll journalist uh, was on his way out to become the editor of track so i just had to wait in line <laughs> and then it was 1975 that you took over wasn't it yeah, the beginning of '75, uh, Albie was good enough to keep me, you know, keep me um, working in bits and bits and pieces, and I took the opportunity to go to Bali and become acquainted with that wonderful surface paradise. And um, and yeah, the beginning of 1975, I, I started my tenure at Tracks and uh, and had one of the most wonderful periods of my life. Fantastic. Um, we have to move on, Phil, but um, look, just wanted to thank you very much today and it is so early and let you get ready to get on that train um, to uh, to cross the country. Uh, so just some information here. Life of Brian, A Surfer's Journey by Phil Jarrett, published by Hardy Grant Books, $29.99. Um, I've seen it in some of my local bookshops and um, thoroughly recommend it if you're looking for something for, uh, for a gift for someone, you know, this upcoming gift-giving season. You don't need to be a surfer to really get a lot out of this book. In fact, I'm not a surfer and I got a hell of a lot out of this book, so thoroughly recommend it. Um, thanks so much, Phil, for joining us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me, Brian. Absolute pleasure, and I uh, hope to catch up with you again sometime. Thank you very much. That was Phil Jarrett there, uh, Life of Brian. Hi, I'm Valerie Taylor. Sharks don't really worry me because, as we all know, they're beautiful animals. Another beautiful thing is Radio Marinara. Sundays at 9am on 3 R. Thank you, Valerie Taylor. It's coming up to 5 to 10 now. Rex. <laughs> Here we are, Bron. Ships in bottles, Ships hey? in bottles, yeah. Wow. So I've actually, I'm looking at this right now and I cannot, how do you get them in? Let's, well, let's start with the basic question. Well, obviously you, you have to smash the bottom off the bottle first. No. No, that has definitely not <laughs> happened. I can attest to that. No, ever since I was a kid, my, at my grandparents' place, they had ships. My grandfather was a ship's carpenter. There was a couple of ships in bottles, and I always fa- so fascinated by it. I thought, one day I'm going to do this. So about 19, uh, 19, 2013, I decided to finally start, have a go at it. So I just bought a, bought a book um, from the uh, over the internet and how to do it. And uh, basically what you need, <laughs> you need a bottle, you need a... A model, you can work with a picture or, or whatever, uh, and you need to be able to fit that that model inside the uh, the neck of the bottle. So in bits and pieces, and so you actually assemble it inside. It's all assembled, yeah, inside. 
And how do you do it? Have you got, is it, like, you obviously need to have very steady hands. You need to have the hands of a surgeon to be able to pull something like this off, I I assume. I have to get my wife to leave the house for a few (laughs) hours. (laughs) I swear and curse. (laughs) And you can come up with a few few mistakes. Like the first first one I I made was about one millimetre too big for the bottle and uh, one millimetre makes a big difference when you've got like a... A 19 millimetre gap and a 20 millimetre ship and ship. So, because uh, if it's not going in, it's not going it's in. There's not nothing go- you can do. <laughs> no. no, that's right. So, and do you use forceps? How do you actually put it together? Yeah, well, it's uh, basically basically you make build the blank the, sh- the ship as a blank um, from a, like a piece of cow. is a great great timber to work with, and uh, sort of use your eye to bring it all into shape, and then um, you make the masts and, and yards and cabins and all that. And, and so you lay, put the stand the mast up with all the all the yards crossed and all that type of thing. You lay them down so they're hinged. You got make a little wire hinge down the bottom of the mast, and that goes into the deck of the vessel. So you lay that down. Obviously, it has to be a fit through the neck, and then once you get that through, there's all bits of uh, cotton as well. So it's all rigged up with cotton. You get it in there. You put it like a plast, uh, plasticine C in there. As you can see, yep, I can see that. You can see the sea. You bed that in, and then very, very carefully, you you pull the uh, the mast up with the, that thread. Now, the, the one, sorry, pull it up, and then tape it all up. Put some, get a, a like a um, a long metal rod, and then you put a dob of glue on where it goes into the uh, into the hull of the ship. I'm let, sure. it, let it sit and then hopefully. <laughs> Did you use any? Um, there's YouTube tutor- tutorials for everything these days. Oh, did you use a YouTube tutorial for this one? Well, I, I did, did look at YouTube, but also just just some old books. I, I managed to pick up over the internet and just um, just practice. And yeah, I mean it's very very fresh. I've knocked sails over. I've cut lines. I've <laughs> pulled the thing out at the plaster plasticine sea. Uh, I've, d- I've done everything you're not supposed to do, right? Including cutting a bottle in two, because I couldn't fit the fit, fit the ship in, <laughs> right? And then putting it back together again. So the one that you've got here is the uh, Caramba. Did you have to do this from scratch? Because I know you can yeah. buy kits and stuff like that. Presumably you've made this no, one yourself. All scratch built. All scratch, scratch built. Because there's plans of the Caramba which make it really easy. Well, e- easier. So you, I scaled it to the uh, size of the the uh, aperture and. Uh, made sure it was all going to fit in. And that cabin you can see on top, Bron, uh, that was actually attached through a bit of fine bit of cotton, uh, so I had to pull that through <laughs> through, and then onto the deck with a bit of glue just to, just to hold it up. But it's just because I like, you know, going out and fighting and diving on shipwrecks and all that type of things. I like to make a little memento. So we found the Caramba in two th- 2011, I think. I, I made the model in 2011 as well. So Great. Are you going to be doing any more? Oh, yeah, I'm working on another one now, a little catch that was uh, part of the Lime Fleet of Port Phillip. Excellent. I'm going to get a photo of you with your ship and we'll (laughs) pop it on our Facebook page. We've got about 30 seconds left. What's coming up for you? Because I think this is your last program, your last show for uh, for this year. No, I'm back again. Oh, you're back again. Excellent. If you've forgotten already. No, um, we did an excavation the other week on the the Safety Beach site, so we got some really good data on that. Uh, We put anodes on the city of Launceston and we're diving a shipwreck off the... uh, Gippsland Coast yesterday, so lots to do. Yeah. Well, let's cover that in detail when you're in. Okay, no All right. problem. Brilliant. Thanks, Rex. <laughs> thanks. And uh, thanks to John. He's out there with his special little helper today. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thanks to our guest today. We had um, Phil Jarrett on the program. Um, 
Neil Blake, aka Captain Trash, Captain Trash, and uh, and Jackie Scully from Ocean Grove Coast Care on next week's program. Anth and Doctor Surf are going to be in, um, along with uh, Jay Power and I believe Doctor Beach. So they've got a big program planned for you. Stay tuned for Radio Therapy. They will take you through to eleven o'clock uh, when the uh, Einsteiners will come in and take you through till twelve. Have a great Sunday. Thank you so much, Kent, for panelling. Thank you, Rex. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, John. Thanks, Kent. <laughs> and, um, oh, thanks, John. <laughs> <laughs> Radio Marinara will be back next week. Have a great Sunday. Bye for now. Bye. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R Sponsors. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.